Well, uh, Wednesday night, we're gonna continue verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, right through the Bible. And uh, we're in the Gospel of Luke. So if you turn to Luke chapter three, that's the chapter we'll study Wednesday night. And we draw our text from, for Sunday morning from our upcoming Wednesday passage. I've just got a little short verse that I uh, will sort of use as a springboard to talk about a kind of a topic that I think is important and will be really helpful with uh, knowing how to interpret scripture and having rightly uh, learned how to divide the word of truth as the Bible says of itself. And it's an important topic. Um, And it it starts with uh, this most incredible individual, John the Baptist. Uh, I've always loved John the Baptist as a Bible character. He's kind of, you know, the guy that went off the grid. He's the guy that was, uh, he was normally supposed to be very formal. He was supposed to be a very, uh, you know, ordained priest. Remember his mother and father, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they were both descendants of Aaron himself, uh, which put him at a very high order, the order of uh, Abijah, uh, which if you know your priesthood, that's a high order of priesthood of the Jews. So Zachariah was, for, was serving, uh, but he was one of the last good guys. The, the reason John the Baptist didn't go right into his father's footsteps and, and what he was supposed to do, because the priesthood had become so corrupt. You know, it was, become, it, it, it was less spiritual, more political. And so John the Baptist, he bails. He says, I'm not going into the priesthood. He should have technically been serving in the, in the temple in Jerusalem, but instead he goes out into the wilderness, much farther than, you know, um, uh, you know Nacho Libre went out into the wilderness, if you know that reference. But uh, yeah, he went way out in the wilderness uh, near the Dead Sea, where he was a Nazarite. He let his hair grow out wild and crazy. He, um, he would eat you know, locusts and wild honey for food. Um, and he also you know, was this guy who wore like camel skins. Uh, he was just this rugged sort of outdoor seeming kind of wild man. Um, but as it turns out, people would come from miles around to hear what he had to say and hear him preach out in the wilderness. Um, an amazing story. Um, so. He heads out to the desert, um, you know, living kind of alone out there. But what was he preaching? What was, what was John the Baptist's message? Well, it, it, that's where we pick it up in our text here in Luke chapter uh, three, verse seven. We see uh, the first words of his kind of first sermon. Um, and what were his words? And this, this is an interesting talking point, if you ask me. Let's read Luke chapter three, verse seven. It says, Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? (laughs) How would you guys feel if I started my sermons out that way? You come to Athey Creek and I go, you brood of vipers, you're a bunch of snakes. You'd say, "Uh, we're going to Rolling Hills. Um, It's time to leave Athey Creek. no, I mean, this is, this is a prickly fire and brimstone sermon and it right out of the gate, you bunch of vipers, he's calling them all snakes, which, you know, in Jewish tradition, of course, is kind of one of the worst things you could actually call someone. Now, um, you know, what, what you also have to realize, this is grabbing everybody's attention, but can I just suggest that the people already have his attention before they even go and hear him. Did you hear why they come out to him? They came out to be baptized of John before they even heard a sermon. You see, what was happening with John the Baptist? He was preaching repentance. The word repentance means to change your mind, to change your direction. And to, you know, you thought one way and you lived a life one way, but when you repent, you turn around and live your life a different way. And that's what John was all about, repentance. 
Word was getting out, this guy's preaching against sinfulness and he's calling everybody a bunch of snakes. Um, his words were always, you know, you're a bunch of sinners. It even got to Herod, if you know the story, where John's demise, he ends up being beheaded because he's preaching against Herod and, and his wickedness um, and he's calling him a big sinner. Um, and Herod didn't like that, but it's a longer story how that'll, we'll see that on Wednesday. But, um, but John was, his number one job, shockingly, was to prepare the way for the Messiah, Jesus, the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And we all know some of it, you know, where he, he sees Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And we think, oh, that's Jesus being prepared by John. You know, John prepared the way. But you really have to understand the greater preparedness came from him saying, you're all just a bunch of miserable, wretched sinners. And he wouldn't just leave them there, um, but he would say, but behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins that you've committed. John prepared the way for Christ by letting people know that they had a radical, radical need to acknowledge their sin and eventually be saved by Jesus Christ. And so John would baptize people. Now, this is something you should know. Did you know that the baptism of John was very different than the baptism today that we have in the church of Jesus Christ? They're two totally different things. John was baptizing to repentance. Christian baptism is the mark on one's life identifying with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, it's also a representation of the cleansing. When you're dunked under the water, the washing, as we come out, we come out a new cre creation in Christ. And it's a um, you know, complete response, a natural response to the salvation that Jesus offers. And when we're baptized in the church, we're to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son, which is Jesus, uh, the, the main part of that. Um, and the Holy Ghost is part of the baptism process too. John the Baptist's baptism had nothing to do with all that. It was all about repentance. Brad, I don't know about that. Baptism is baptism. Well, just remember the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 19, Paul talks to these brand new baby Christians. Like they, they, these are people that know Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but that's pretty much all they know. So John, uh, or pardon me, so um, Paul asked the church in, in Acts 19, hey, have you guys received the Holy Ghost? And they all said, we don't even know if there is a Holy Ghost. And, and he says, what? And then he asks, verse three of chapter 19, he said to them, unto what then were you baptized? In other words, if you don't know what the Holy Ghost is, how were you baptized? And they, and they said, unto John, John the Baptist's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him who should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, these people weren't really baptized because they were only baptized unto repentance. And that's not enough. Um, you can't just repent and, be, and then think you're saved because you've repented. You changing your mind in repentance actually doesn't save you. It does get you in the right posture for salvation. You have to realize you need to repent. And then once you do repent, then you can be saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Uh, so there it is. And so that's part of why John the Baptist comes off so fiery when you read what he said to people. He was always preaching fire and brimstone. Now, I've been preaching for about 40 plus years, uh, and I've been doing this long enough to, uh, to notice something that's kind of strange. And that is, if I teach or preach a sermon that's more fiery and kind of fire and brimstone, inevitably I have people come up, oh, Pastor Brett, man, you were in the Holy Spirit today. Man, preach it, brother. 
Like, like people love brutal sermons. And I've always been puzzled by that. Like, why do people like brutal sermons? And I've had to deduce it to this. I think people know what wretched, miserable sinners they are. And they're like, okay, Brad, just preach it. Pile it on, man. Beat us up, because uh, we deserve it. We're all wretched, miserable. Go ahead, you know, and oh, that was a really good sermon. I feel horrible, so praise the Lord. Uh, <laughs> like, like, there is a thing, there is a thing about that. People sort of like the fire and brimstone. Now, let me just say this. I think there is still a place for some of that kind of preaching. There's still a place for calling out sin. And if you've been around Eighth of Greek, we, we do uh, talk about the danger of sin and, and, and the, the failure of humanity to save themselves. And fire and brimstone, there's still a place. But here's the thing. I've also noticed you can't just leave it there. If you preach a fire and brimstone sermon in the New Testament era, and you just leave it that you're a bunch of sinners, then you've failed. And you might even derail people from true faith in Christ because you've preached wrongly only if you land on the fire and brimstone. See, even John the Baptist knew that because he knew that he was preaching, you're all a bunch of sinners, but then he would point to and prepare the way for the Lamb of God that took away the sins. So it's funny, the more I, hardcore I preach, I've noticed people will applaud and nod their heads and, and are in, in agreement and, and uh, but, uh, but it, it, you know, it, it's, it's one thing to make people feel guilty, but it's another reason why do we preach those kinds of sermons? Um, it's so that hopefully you repent of your sins and are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. John's message was that of severity so that Jesus's message could be that of serenity. You see, Jesus, you say, well, Brett, Jesus preached vipers too. Remember, he said, oh, you're a bunch of vipers. Well, who was he preaching to there, Jesus? Anybody? Yeah, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes, all the religious chief priests, all these hip hypocrites or religious leaders. Jesus, man, he hammered them. But unlike John the Baptist, John the Baptist hammered everybody. The multitudes came out into the wilderness and the sinners came and he said, you're just a bunch of vipers. Jesus called the religious leaders vipers. That's interesting. But what did, what did Jesus do to the sinners? Well, that's where you see a total difference between John the Baptist and Jesus. Jesus would actually preach to the sinners and they would come and hear him gladly. The Bible says the common people heard Jesus gladly and they marveled at his gracious words. Um, I love what Isaiah the prophet in a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 42, he talks about the Messiah's demeanor when he comes and, it, and then Jesus would quote it in Matthew chapter 12, verse 20 reminding us what his nature is. A bruised reed shall he not break. A smoking flax shall he not quench till he sent forth judgment unto victory. In, in, the, in this prophecy of the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah 42, Jesus is, is you know, saying, you know, the bruised reed um, and the smoldering wick uh, or flax um, refer to spiritually, physically, morally weak, messed up people. That's the bruised reed and the smoking flax. Some of you, before you met Christ, you were right at that point, your life was just a mess and you were on the edge of totally being broken or even snuffed out. That's the imagery here. But um, here, Jesus is saying the bruised reed um, is not damaged beyond repair. The smoking flax is uh, maybe something that can be reignited and back into good use. John's ministry was to remind people of their depravity. And what's interesting about that, Jesus said, John the Baptist is the last of the prophets. 
Um, if you go to a church where they have prophets in the church and they say, oh, I'm a prophet today, I'm just telling you, look it up, it's biblically wrong. There are people in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament church that give a word of prophecy by the Spirit through, the, through a word of prophecy, and that's what we talked about that last week, uh, exhortation, edification, and comfort, not really like the prophets of the Old Testament. That ministry of Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, Jesus says, was the last of those guys. But interestingly, Jesus lumps him in with those guys because they really had the same job. The Old Testament prophets were to remind the Jews that they were failing and sinning and messing up time and time again. When you read the prophets, most of the time, it's this brutal fire and brimstone stuff um, to show their need for the Lord himself. Now, the Old Testament prophets, one of the things they didn't have that we have is they didn't know God's perfect plan of how it was gonna really work out logistically that God would become a man and live among us and die on the cross for the sins, not of just the Jews, but for us as well, and deal with the sinful humanity's doom with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus would also sort of bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. For example, um, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is, is kind of interesting because it's New Testament, but it sounds kind of Old Testament-y, if you know what I mean. Uh, I remember an old guy came up to me one time and said, I just live by the Sermon on the Mount. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> Why is that? Because if you live by the Sermon on the Mount, can I just suggest you will die and go to hell? Brett, what are you saying? No, think about it. Jesus tells them on the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, 20. Now, you gotta understand, for the Jews in those days, they would have said, well, then who can be saved? Because the Pharisees were the most righteous, seemingly, of all the people on the planet. They were the guys who were so meticulous about trying to keep the law, even though we all know they failed. They would take their pepper and their cumin and their you know, thyme and rosemary and all their spices, and they'd divvy them up. One piece of you know, pepper for me, or for the Lord, nine pieces for me, one-tenth the tithe. They would tithe of their mint and rue and their, their, all their spices and herbs because they were so righteous. They would sort of piously try to keep the, the big law of, the, of Moses in the Old Testament, but we all know they, they all failed. But the Jews hearing Jesus, unless your righteousness exceeds that, well, who, who can be saved, they would have said. And then Jesus even upped the stakes from there. I mean, the Old Testament, Jesus said, you've heard of them say of old time, the Old Testament law, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you on the Sermon on the Mount, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. Oh, that takes out half the population right there. Um, what about uh, if you're angry? Well, Jesus said, you've heard of the old time people say, thou shalt not kill, which is true. That's what the law says. But Jesus said, but, uh, but I say unto you, if you have anger, if you, whoever's angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And see the Sermon on the Mount, it just ups the stakes and makes it even more intense than the Old Testament. And then what's even more shocking is it seems that Jesus doesn't really give a solution. By the end of the sermon, it's like the end. And then you're kind of like, but what means we're all doomed? Question, why didn't Jesus give the answer to the dilemma he created in preaching the Sermon on the Mount? The answer is this. He didn't give the answer to that problem because he is the answer to that problem. Jesus Christ would be the one who would actually make it so 
you and I could be declared more righteous than the, than the Pharisee. And how are we declared more righteous? Because practically we're just really amazing people? No, positionally in Christ, he takes all our sins and forgives us completely and washes us clean so that we are declared righteousness. Um, you know, uh, the, the book of Romans talks about how he's imputed righteousness. That means like superimposing over your sinfulness, righteousness. That's why the Old Testament prophet Isaiah foretold, we are gonna be robed in his righteousness. Covered is the idea. So Jesus didn't give the answer to the Sermon on the Mount because he is the, the answer of the Sermon on the Mount. And so in doing so, he's bridging the gap between the fire and brimstone of the Old Testament and then seeing the answer, which is Jesus in the New Testament. It's so important to see this. And it's for that reason, like, uh, let me ask you some questions here. Um, is the law of the Old Testament good? Yes or no? Yes, because it's the Bible, right? But you might be tempted to say, I don't know, Brett, the law kills, that's what the Bible says, so I think it's kind of bad. Well, it is kind of bad, unless you see the law through the lens of Jesus Christ. When, when, when we went through the Old Testament as a church, our hearts burned because we'd read the law and then we'd think, oh, thank you, Lord, that I am no longer under that law. The more we'd read the Old Testament, the more thankful you are for Jesus who came and died on the cross for our sins. That's why Paul had to explain it because the Judaizers and some of the people in the New Testament were saying, we need to get back to the law. But Paul would say, we're no longer under the law. Galatians chapter three, verse 24 and 25. Wherefore the law, Paul says, was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified, that means just as if you'd never sinned, by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster, the law, for you are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. If you after church got a hankering for some cash, but you don't have any in your account, you go down to the Bank of the West in Tualatin and you come in there and pull out a weapon and say, give me all your money, put it in a bag. And you're there robbing the bank. And then all of a sudden, the SWAT team comes swarming around to Walton and, and then they run in and you turn with your gun and boom, they kill you dead. And there you are laying. Beth, this is a dark illustration. Yeah, but it sort of works. I'll tell you why. You're laying there dead after trying to rob the bank. What do they do? Do they pick up your corpse and haul you down to Washington County courtroom, put you, lean you in sort of a chair? And, and then you're sitting there and then they put you on trial? Um, no, they don't do that. Why? Because you're dead. You see, this is the imagery the Bible sort of uses. The law kills and it does, and we've all failed and we're guilty of breaking the law, just like when you robbed the bank. The difference is when you realize, man, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be crucified with Christ. I'm dead to sin. Um, and what's so great about this is that we get to have the good news. No longer are we under that law because we have Jesus Christ who perfectly fulfilled the law. Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. The Bible says he came to fulfill the law. What a, what a huge thing. Now, some people, like I said, love to hear the fire and brimstone sermons. And there's people today that love to preach the fire and brimstone. There's people today that I think are very, maybe overly political, but we think you're overly political. Let me give a disclaimer. I talk about things that are political here at 8th Creek that I could care less that they're political. I talk about things that are biblical. If it's in the Bible, I'm gonna talk about it. So things like abortion, people say, that's political. No, it's very biblical. Um, what's a political issue I don't talk about that I may perhaps have a strong feeling? Have you ever heard Pastor Brett up here talk about gun control? Not one time. 
Do I have an opinion on it? Yes. What is it, Pastor Brett? It doesn't matter. It's not in the Bible. Oh, Brett, there's scripture about the sword. They carried a sword. Come on, are you kidding me? Like, let's be real. Um, the Bible is kind of silent on that one. So I believe when the Bible's silent, I'm gonna be silent. Uh, if you come over to my house for dinner and hang out and would talk, I'll tell you what my opinion is on that. But from this angle, see, it's not that I'm afraid to talk about political things. I just wanna talk about things that are biblical. So we talk about things like Israel, the Arab-Israeli conflict. That's political. No, it's very, very biblical and prophecy-oriented. Um, and so whenever we talk about political things, you can erase the political part and say, no, this is biblical. Um, some churches, however, have crossed that line and they've, they've, they haven't really noticed that they've got, gotten so political. Um, by the way, that's why John the Baptist didn't become a priest. They were more political than they were spiritual. The, the high priest, the Sanhedrin of Jerusalem and stuff like that. Um, but the reason I say that is I think there's people that misuse the fire and brimstone that we're talking about here and they use it only without the lens of Jesus Christ. And so you're only about fire and brimstone and you're kind of leaving people in a lurch unless you present to them the beautiful, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. What do you mean, Brett? You know, um, Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. That's our job. But I think a lot of Christians go around trying to clean the fish before they catch the fish. You fishermen, does that work? to go out and clean the fish before you catch them? You can't do it. So if you're going downtown Portland, marching against abortion, yelling and upset and saying, this is evil and wrong, you're sinners. And um, you know, can I just say, you're trying to clean the fish before you catch the fish. The best thing you can do is get a person saved where they repent of their sins and then they might change their worldview on something as horrifying as abortion. I think sometimes we, we forget to bring the gospel in. Everything has to be seen through the lens of Jesus Christ. And I wanna show you that here perhaps, uh, hopefully today. Um, in fact, John the Baptist, uh, he was called by Jesus and many people know this. It says, uh, Matthew eleven eleven. Verily Jesus said, I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Think about that for a second. And if you're a Jew standing there hearing Jesus say, you know that guy with the wild hair and little twitching locust legs between his teeth uh, out there in the wilderness? No one's greater than him that has been born up to this point in history. So you'd say, wait a minute, you're saying he's better than Moses? Yep. Abraham, our father? Yep, better than that guy, greater. No one up to this point uh, has, has, that has risen that's been greater than John the Baptist. But, but here's what's shocking. Um, we, we love that because we're like, wow, that, that tells us John the Baptist was, was the greatest. It wasn't, as it turns out, Muhammad Ali. <laughs> um, but but uh, the second half of this verse, nobody wants to talk about because I think there's a lot of people that don't know what it means. And so you kind of go, uh, yeah, <clears throat> whatever. Uh, what's the second half of this verse? Well, it's shockingly, notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Huh? Who's greater than John the Baptist? Anyone. Anyone that is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now this makes us have to do some thinking about what's the kingdom of heaven. And th there's some confusion on this one by there. You can go to churches that will say, we're in the kingdom right now. They call it kingdom now theology or dominion theology where we're living in the kingdom. And those pastors have to try to preach. This, this always kind of is embarrassing. They try to preach that things are getting better. 
Um, that, that'd be hard to say with a straight face I, I, from my perspective. Uh, things are better. Things are getting better. Um, no, they're not. And the Bible says they're gonna get worse before they get better. Um, it's because they're trying to argue that we're living in the kingdom. Now, I'm so glad we're not living in the kingdom because this is not fun. The kingdom that's coming, it says, Daniel says, there's gonna be an end of sin, an end of transgression. There's gonna be everlasting peace and prosperity. And Jesus is gonna rule and reign over this whole earth. That's the coming kingdom. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That hasn't happened yet. So we still pray for that. But here's where it gets a little tricky. Do you remember when Jesus was there and he's talking with his disciples and he says, the kingdom of God is among you. Now I'm really confused. Is it here or isn't it? Well, the kingdom has to do with the king. You don't have a kingdom unless you have a king. The Lord's kingdom that's coming is gonna happen in his second coming. Uh, that's when the ultimate expression of his kingdom is gonna be seen. And man, we look forward to that day. But as it turns out, if you're a Christian and you believe that Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you have a king and you're part of his kingdom right now. Um, that's, that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, John the Baptist, up to this point, was the greatest man ever born among women, but he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Brett, are you suggesting that you're saying we, the church of Jesus Christ, are greater than John the Baptist? I'm gonna say yes. How, how can you say that? We're not as good as John the Baptist. Oh, practically, I would agree with you. Um, you don't have quite the hairdo uh, that he had. And he really was a great guy. But what makes you and I greater than John? Uh, it's because of we have the truth and the understanding of things John and the Old Testament prophets and um, the, the, the psalm, psalmist and others of the Old Testament, they had no way of knowing or understanding or experiencing. Peter, the apostle in his epistles writes, how can the, the prophets sat around saying, how can all these things be? Well, you and I know the answer. We know the story of the gospel and guess what? It's not that you are better than John the Baptist. It's guess what? Christ is in you. We, as the church of Jesus Christ, we are given you know, imputed righteousness, we are forgiven for our sins, and we have Christ in you and in us, which is our hope and glory. That's what makes, that's the only reason you're better. It's really, it has not really as much to do about you, but it's who, who is in you. And that's why Jesus would make such a bold statement that he that is even least in the kingdom of heaven is gonna be greater than John the Baptist. So here's the thing. You say, okay, Brett, so we, we have an advantage over John because we have Christ in us. Christ died on the cross, was buried, rose from the grave. None of that happened before John. John would be the last of the prophets. Um, and then the whole new church age begins where we are considered great because we have Christ in us. It's what Jesus did in us that's so great. Now, this is why when you look at John the Baptist and as you're just a bunch of vipers, you have to always look at John the Baptist through the lens of Jesus Christ. When you read Moses and the law of the Old Testament, you have to look through the lens of Jesus Christ. Even in the New Testament, when you read Paul the apostle, you've got to read it through the lens of Jesus Christ. If you fail to do that, you won't really interpret scripture rightly. Um, now, I know I just made a bold statement. Some of you might be going, I don't know about all that, Brett. Um, I follow Andy Stanley, and he says we, the church, needs to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Why would a guy like Andy Stanley say such a horrible thing? We need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. I'm gonna tell you, as smart of a guy as he is, he doesn't understand the Old Testament. Why, why would you say that, Brett? Because he doesn't understand the Old Testament is all about 
Jesus Christ. No, 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 it's, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, that's about Jesus. The Old Testament is the law and the Jews and rebellion and sin and death and blood and guts. No. Do you guys remember when we went through the Old Testament as a church, if you were here with us, how our hearts burned when we read the Old Testament and saw, wow, Jesus is, is the, the scarlet thread of Jesus is throughout the Old Testament. Let me give you the, the easy lobs. Um, they smashed, you know, Moses smashed a rod up against a rock and the rock gushed forth water and the people drank and they lived because the rock had water. And I will tell you, that's Jesus. Well, Brett, you're making stuff up. Well, the reason I can do that one easily is because the, the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, don't you understand? These things are all types of Jesus. He said, the rock that followed them in the wilderness that water gushed out, that rock is Christ. So Paul gives us license to say, wow, even the rock is a picture of Jesus. And I believe from cover to cover, the Bible is all about Jesus. You have to look at it through the lens of Jesus. When President Obama, do you guys remember when he said, what are we gonna do, follow the Bible, he said, derogatorily. And he said, are we gonna take our kids outside of the, the town and stone them to death? Remember when he said that? And he was kind of making fun of the Bible, like, what are we gonna do, follow what the Bible says? There's a poor guy that doesn't understand the Bible. You see, when I read the passage of take your kid out and stone them to death if they're misbehaving, the first thing that comes to my mind, I wouldn't have survived the Old Testament. I would have been stoned to death by kindergarten. But praise be to Jesus. When I look at the Old Testament law of stoning the child that's dis disruptive in the family, I, I, I look through the lens of Jesus and realize, wow, Jesus is, didn't do away with the law, but he fulfilled the law. And we all would die by the law if it wasn't for Jesus who died on the cross. It's all to be seen through the lens of the filter of Jesus Christ. You know, this is why Paul the apostle himself, remember a few weeks ago, we talked about his sermon at Mars Hill where he never mentioned Jesus? Big goof because everything's gotta be seen through the, the lens of Jesus. And that's why later on in Paul's life, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse two, he said, I have determined to know nothing, not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. The only thing I really wanna know about is Jesus Christ. Do you think Paul's saying, forget the Old Testament? No, I believe Paul is saying, you will not understand the Old Testament until you know Jesus Christ and him crucified, because that's what it's all about. All the blood and guts of the Old Testament that some people despise, it's actually there to make you rejoice of the good grace and work of the cross of Jesus Christ himself. You gotta see it all through the lens of Jesus Christ. Um, uh, let's talk about even Paul the Apostle. If you don't read Paul, you can, Paul kind of a fiery guy. You wanna know one of the scariest New Testament passages I think is out there is Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. Um, does this scare anybody? It says, now the works of the flesh are manifest or made known, which are these. And he makes this list. Number one, adultery. You're like, well, whew, check. That's not me. I've never committed adultery. Uh, remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? If you even look at a woman with less than your heart, and I would even add to that, if you ever looked at a man with less than your heart, you're guilty of adultery. <laughs> Number two, fornication. Oh, I don't commit pornography. I know, I know, Brett. Fornication, Greek word, porneia. I don't look at pornography. Do you understand that fornication, yeah, the Greek word is porneia, but by definition, New Testament fornication is anything that's sexual in nature that is outside of the marriage relationship. That's what is defined as fornication. Just, just, just so you know. 
And I could go through the whole list here, and I'm not going to. I've done whole sermons on this and talked about, you know, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred. Have you ever hated anybody? Variance, emulations, wrath, uh, being angry, you know, strife, sedition, heresy, envyings. Have you ever been watching Chip and Joanna and envied <laughs> their shiplap or something? <laughs> eh. Murderers, remember murders, uh, Jesus said you're guilty of murder even if you have anger in your heart towards your brother without cause. Drunkenness, have you ever been a little tipsy? That's called drunkenness. Revelings and such like of the which I tell you before as I've also told you in time past that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Whew, does this make anybody nervous? It says you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you do these things. So if you've committed adultery or even had lust in your heart, guilty, envy, wrath. Like these, this is a scary list. Now, it's scary. So you and I, the answer is to look through the lens of Jesus Christ um, because it'll help you interpret this scripture rightly. I believe it's wrong to interpret this scripture if you say, well, if you've ever been drunk in your life, you're going to hell. And somebody could use this scripture to say that if you really read it, like it states it there in the King Jimmy and really in most of the other newer translations, it's the same thing. Um, but there is, before we look at the lens of Jesus, there is actually a, a, a technical answer that I could give you, but I'm not sure anybody would just come to this on their own without kind of a linguistic study. You see, if you break down this orange phrase that I put at the very uh, end there, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is speaking, he's using the present active participle. Well, la ti da, Brett, whatever. I hated that stuff in school. I did too. But uh, it's funny, when you study the Greek language, some of this is really helpful. The idea is you can add an ing kind of to this statement. Um, that they which are doing these things, the idea is those who continually practice these things, this list, they're the ones who are not gonna inherit the kingdom of heaven. So if you're going out saying, how can I be better at committing adultery? Um, I, how can I deceive my spouse and sleep around as much as possible? And I wanna get better and better at that. Then I can't promise you that you're saved. And this should make you nervous, this verse. Um, you may not be saved at all. Well, I accepted Christ when I was five years old. Uh, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But if you're continually doing these things, I'm not gonna as a pastor promise you that you're going to heaven. It's, a, it's kind of a heavy subject. Oh, Brett, that's pretty tough. Let's go to the Jesus lens thing. What do you do with that? Well, that's actually better and I'll tell you why. Because even if you don't know that the present active participle is in play here, you can still come to the same conclusion when you realize what did Jesus do when he handled the person caught in adultery in the very act? Well, you know, John chapter eight. There's this poor woman who was caught in the very act. And, and I wonder if she was caught in the act, where's the man? Why did they drag the poor woman into the middle of the street? Where's the dude? I'll tell you, it's because they didn't care about righteousness. They didn't care about any of that. They were trying to trick Jesus. If they could get him to say, well, you know, they said, should we keep the law and stone this woman to death or should we let her go? And they thought they had Jesus because if he said, let her go, he'd be breaking the law and he'd be in trouble uh, with the uh, authorities. If he said stone her to death, then his message of grace and mercy and kind words would be out the window and the multitudes would stop following him. So they thought they had him, but you know the story. They throw this woman down, probably naked, throws her, throws her down in the street and say, what do we do? And Jesus just reached down and started riding in the sand. And then he looked up and said, those of you that are without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. 
And then he started writing in the sand again. And what was he writing in the sand? We have no idea, except for the, the Greek translation there, the original language, it says he katagraphein, which means he was writing against. That's all we know. So I have some speculation. I'll admit it's, it's maybe a harebrained idea, but I'll tell you what I think he was writing. I think he started with the oldest dude there and wrote something in the sand that was very much convicting to that guy. Um, why do I think it was the oldest guy? Because one by one, they dropped their rocks from the oldest to the youngest and they went home. So I think he started with the oldest guy and said, Motel 6, Jerusalem, AD 12. <laughs> and that guy's like, I think I hear my wife calling, sorry, can't stone anybody today, dropped the rock and went out. Second oldest guy, Tiberius, super eight. (laughs) Like these guys were probably guilty of the same thing that they were accusing this poor woman of, bunch of hypocrites. But if you know the story there in John 8, 10 and 11, you know, Jesus finally looks at the woman, there's not another dude around, they all dropped their rocks and left. And he says, woman, where are thine accusers? And she says, no man is here. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Oh, that's what Jesus does with this. If you're caught in adultery, Paul says, if you're continually practicing adultery, then you may, you're not gonna inherit the kingdom of heaven. And I would say if this woman, just pretend for a second, she looked at Jesus and thanks for the freedom. And then she went off and kept being a, an adulteress. She'd be in big trouble but I have a hunch and and I'm I'm sure of this that someday we're gonna get to heaven, we're gonna meet the John 8 woman who was caught in adultery and we'll say, you're the one. And I'll bet, you know, know, I'll give you a sneak preview of how I'm gonna close this today. Um, The kindness that Jesus showed her, I bet you it led to a radical repentance in her heart. And I don't think he said, go your way and sin no more, woman. I don't think that's what he said. I think with a forgiving, merciful gleam in his eye, he said, neither do I condemn you, go your way and sin no more. So we can interpret Galatians 5, 19 through 21. That's a very scary New Testament scripture from Paul that's very nerve wracking and realize, well, what did Jesus do with the adulterer or the fornicator or those that have you know, done all kinds of evil? Jesus is the one who goes to the sinners. And isn't it amazing that it was all the sinners that liked to hang out with Jesus? Um, the religious people had a real problem with Jesus because he was not as legalistic as he should be, not as heavy on the sinners as he should be. But Jesus was known. Um, people marveled at his gracious words. Um, we could go on and on with the examples. Jesus with the woman at the well in Samaria. She was a prostitute. And Jesus talks to her and she, she, she lies to him. You know, uh, he says, go and tell your husband, go get your husband. And, and the woman says, oh, I don't have a husband. And she says, oh, you've spoken rightly. He didn't say, liar. He said, go, go and tell your husband, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he, and he said, you've spoken well that you have no husband because you actually have five husbands and the one you're with right now is not even your husband. She said, sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. <laughs> Perceptive woman. And she continues to talk to him only to realize this is the Messiah that I've just met. She accepts Jesus as the Messiah, she runs into town, drops her water pots that she was at the well for. She runs into town and says, now you got her, this is like one of the town prostitutes. She runs into town and says, I just met a man who knows everything I ever did. Do you ever wonder if some of the guys are like, everything? <laughs> and they all run out to find Jesus who told this woman everything she ever did. 
And I believe that town came to a place of salvation, not because Jesus was firing brimstone, you know, nailing her down, but he was forgiving and merciful because that's what Jesus does. That's what John the Baptist was fiery about so that people would turn to the one who was the solution to the problem. So the whole Bible, is, the Old Testament is to point you to Jesus Christ. So if you don't look at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ, you're not gonna be able to interpret scripture very well. Now, there's, there's some things that are really helpful about scriptural interpretation. Uh, hermeneutics is a fancy word for how to rightly divide and, and, and discern and interpret the Bible. And there's rules that are really helpful. Um, maybe you've heard of exegesis versus eisegesis. What's that? Um, well, it has nothing to do with Jesus per se, even though it sounds that way. Um, but it, it's about rightly dividing the word. Second Timothy, remember what it says? Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing or interpreting the word of truth. And so where a lot of people go wrong, by the way, is this uh, concept of exegesis uh, and eisegesis. Eisegesis, you might say, is bad, and exegesis is pretty good. And I'm saying pretty good because I'm gonna even talk about an exception to that in a second that's important. Um, Brad, I'm, I don't care what I exegesis. Well, you should. A lot of churches are using eisegesis to defend homosexuality. They're using eisegesis to uh, defend things that are just not biblical. What is um, eisegesis? It means uh, to lead into. Exegesis means to draw out. So when you, it's about how you approach the Bible. If you approach the Bible saying, I believe in that homosexuality is okay and God loves you know, gay lifestyle and practice, then you cannot read the Bible exegetically because the Bible literally says homosexuality is an abomination before the Lord. So to defend that, you have to say, I'm going to find a scripture and I'm gonna defend homosexuality. Oh, here's one, love one another. So what you're doing is you're choosing a passage that says people should love one another. And you'll know you're my disciples by your love one for another. So love, a man loving a man, love is love. And so it's all good. And it's what the Bible says. So homosexuality is okay. What did you just do there, Brett? That's what's called eisegesis. It's, it's taking your preconceived idea that could be right or wrong and trying to superimpose it into the scripture, finding a verse to defend your position. Horrible way to read the Bible. And that's why so many churches are derailed and off on way wacko truth, so-called, but it's not truth at all. Exegesis is to say, we're gonna read the scripture and draw out what the original intent was. What is the, what is the Bible teaching us? What was the intent of the author? And what, were, what was he saying to the people of that time? And what are we supposed to draw from that? And that's the way we should really approach the scripture. Unless... Okay, here's the part, some exegesis friends that we have make a mistake. Unless the Bible says you can read into things that you're supposed to read into stuff. What do you mean, Brad? I'm really confused. Um, let me just give you a, a, an example of, of, of you know, eisegesis. Like let's say you're a pastor and you wanna preach a sermon on church attendance. And so you think I need an Old Testament example to illustrate that. So you go to Second Chronicles chapter 27, where Jotham uh, reigns instead of his father Uzziah. So you read, Jotham was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, and his daughter, she was the daughter of Zadok. And he, Jotham, did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah did, Howbeit he entered not into the temple of the Lord. Oh, that's a good church attendance. This guy was a good dude generally, but he didn't go to the temple. 
That's your sermon. So that's one of your illustrations. The problem is you just eisegesed it up. You, you're reading into the scripture something that's not even there. If you know the context of the story, you know Uzziah was generally a pretty amazing guy, but he made a huge mistake. What was Uzziah's mistake? Anybody remember? Hello? Well, he became a leper because of this. It was kind of a big deal. The problem is Uzziah was a pretty squared away guy. Here was the problem. Uzziah had proudly usurped the priest office. He was the king, not a priest. And he went into the temple daily and said, get out of the way, you priest. I'm kind of the priest. I'm large and in charge here. And because of that, he went into the temple daily and made a big sin and he became a leper. Like it's really kind of a sad story. So when, when you know the context of this, when it says he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father Uzziah did, how be it he entered not into the temple of the Lord like his dad did. Um, that's, the, that's the context. So this has nothing to do with not going to, to church. It's actually a wrong way of interpretation. So you gotta be careful using good general rules and what you have. But you said, Brett, you said, so exegesis is good, eisegesis is bad, yes, but exegesis, if you're not careful, can be ex out Jesus. What do you mean, Brett? If you take the Old Testament and say, Brett, I think you're reading into the Old Testament. You're, you're coming with the presupposition that Jesus is in the whole Bible. And so you find Jesus all over the Old Testament. And I would say, that's true, you're right. Well, that's just you reading into the text. Um, no, the Bible gives you and me more than license to say Jesus is in the whole Bible. Um, Question, here's a question for you. What part of the Bible is not about Jesus? See, the answer is the whole Bible is about Jesus. How do I know that? Well, you know, we got a, some hints, but we also have some very overt stuff. One of the hints is Hebrews chapter seven in talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system. Um, the author of Hebrews quotes from the Psalm saying, then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, that is Jesus, the sacrifice, to do the, thy will, O God. Jesus is written of in the volume of the book. And if you don't, here's, I'm gonna make a bold statement, but I'll defend it here in a second. If you don't see the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, you will not understand the Old Testament. That's how Andy Stanley comes to that conclusion. We need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Poor guy, he doesn't see that your heart can burn with Joy when you see Jesus depicted all throughout the Old Testament. It's not just the rock that was smitten, that water came out. First Corinthians 10 says that rock that followed them was Jesus. That's, that's a very overt one that the Bible hands us, tees it up for us, we, we see it, but it's all throughout. Read the story of Joseph of the book of Genesis. Well, what does that have to do with Jesus? Joseph, there's no record of sin in Joseph's life. Joseph is sent by the father to find his brothers to seek and save his brothers. I'm gonna use language here that's gonna help you connect the dots. The father sends the son, his favorite beloved son, to go and find his brothers, the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, by the way, those, that's, the, that's the, the brothers. And he seeks and goes to, and, and, but what do the brothers do when he finds them? They despise him and reject him, and they throw him in a pit and leave him for dead. But he comes out of the pit alive and he ends up being the most powerful guy in the world and saving the Jews and feeding them all and salvation was found through him. What story am I talking about? Is that the story of Joseph? Or is that a beautiful foreshadow of Jesus Christ himself? And I just gave you like 10 points out of about 500 in the story of Joseph. The Old Testament comes alive when you see through the lens of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it's just kind of a sad story of doom and gloom. 
Um, let me show you another thing. We're almost done here, but um, would you keep your finger here and go with me to Luke 24? Um, toward the end of Luke, something happens here that really um, is, I think, very plain and clear for us to understand. And hopefully you'll see what I'm saying. You gotta look at the whole Bible through the lens of Jesus or else you won't really rightly interpret the scriptures, whether it's Paul or Moses or Ezekiel. Um, you gotta look through the lens. Check this out. So in Luke 24, Jesus has died on the cross. He rose from the grave. He hasn't ascended yet. He's appearing to people now in his resurrected form. One of the things I don't have time to talk about is why did people not rec recognize Jesus in his res rec uh, resurrected form? Um, there's several reasons, suggestions we could get into, but for now, that's kind of a weird thing. People just didn't recognize him for the most part. Well, that's the case. There's two disciples, not part of the 12 disciples, but these were nonetheless disciples. One guy's name was Cleopas, we know. Um, but Jesus is walking down the street after he rose from the grave with these two dudes walking on a road to Emmaus, a little town outside of Jerusalem. And on the way, uh, they start talking and they say, oh man, we can't believe what happened there. And, and Jesus is like, what happened? And like, what? Are you a stranger in the land? Don't you know Jesus of Nazareth was just crucified in Jerusalem? What, don't you know? And she's like, no, tell me about that. Uh, even though he's the one who was crucified. And they're like, they start explaining, but he, they reveal their, their ignorance that Jesus really had to die on the cross. It's a fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And they didn't understand it. So Jesus finally turns and says, guys, in fact, let's read. It's, it's Luke 24, verse 25. Chapter 24, verse 25. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? In other words, don't you guys get it? He's not trying to be mean here. He's saying, you guys are slow to get it. Don't you know your Old Testament prophets? And then verse 27 is amazing. And then it says, verse 27, and a beginning at Moses, which is the law, and all the prophets he expounded unto them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Boy, I wish I could get that teaching. I mean, here's Jesus saying, you wanna see all of me in the Old Testament? Well, let me tell you. And so they're just walking down this road and Jesus just starts saying, yeah, Joseph and the seeking his brothers, that was me. Um, you remember the, the seed of the woman that would be born to crush the head of the serpent? Me. Um, remember the rock that water came out? Me. Like, remember the tabernacle and all the pictures of what the tabernacle? Me. Like, the whole testament is, and, and he, he, boy, I'd love to pick up this teaching. Someday in heaven, I'll hear this teaching. And so, verse 28, they drew nigh unto the village, whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further, just to keep going. But they constrained him, saying, come abide with us, for it is toward the evening, the day is far spent. So he went in to hang out with them there. In verse 30, it came to pass as he sat at dinner with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Um, and then it says their eyes were opened and they knew him. And then he vanished out of sight. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like you have a guest over and then uncharacteristically, the, the guest comes in and grabs the bread and starts blessing it. Wait, he's our guest. He shouldn't be doing that. But he does it and he blessed and broke it. And that's when they said, oh, that's Jesus himself. And as soon as they figured out, la, 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 Jesus disappears. <laughs> what did they do next? Check this out, I love this. Verse 32, 
And they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, while he opened to us the scriptures, the scriptures about himself? See, that's why when you and I as Athey Creekers went through the Old Testament, we weren't seeing blood and guts and doom and gloom and Old Testament stories that we need to unhitch ourselves from. Our hearts burned because we saw Jesus, the scarlet thread woven throughout the whole Testament and it makes your heart, it's good heartburn. That's what, didn't our hearts burn? They had heartburn in a good way because they knew that Jesus was in the Old Testament. Look at verse 44. And he said unto them, verse 44, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. It's all about me, Jesus said. Verse 45, here's a huge, huge right here, verse 45. And then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. What, what did he do? The, the implication here is you will not really understand the scriptures until you see that it's all about Jesus. You gotta look at the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation with the lens of Jesus Christ and that will give you understanding. If you don't do that, you won't understand. You'll say stupid stuff like, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. What a sorry, sorry church that doesn't read the Old Testament. You see, it's, it's to help us understand the work of Christ. <laughs> you know, um, biblical interpretation. You gotta rightly interpret scripture. And if you don't rightly interpret it, you're gonna be in trouble. Interpretation of the Bible. That's why so many churches are derailed. That's why so many Christians are deconstructing their faith because they've been mis misled. And people say that doesn't match up. That stuff doesn't work. Why would Paul say you're all going to hell if you've done little things? It can't be, that's not the God I know of the Bible. And there, there's just confusion. It's because they're not looking through the lens of Jesus Christ, the interpretation. I love the story of Pepe Rodriguez. The story is told in the old wild west. There was this Mexican marauder, bandito, who'd come up across the border and rob banks in America. And then, then he'd go back across the border and, and then he'd hang out and spend all his money in the cantinas and on, you know, uh, gambling. And then he'd come back up and get more money. Well, the Texas Rangers were always trying to catch him, but they couldn't. And they finally got so frustrated they said, we're gonna just break the law ourselves. And they broke the law, crossed over the border down into Mexico and found Pepe Rodriguez out in the open cantina, you know, gambling. And, and they came walking in the four Texas Rangers and they pulled their guns and held it to the back of his head and said, Pepe Rodriguez, your number is up. If you don't tell us where are, you've hidden all the money, we're gonna blow your brains out here and now. Well, Pepe is shaking, he's nervous and he looks around and, and he says, no comprende. He doesn't know any English. And, and so the bartender says, hey, I'm a friend of Pepe's and I, I know English, so let me translate for you. So the, the bartender said, okay, Pepe, they're gonna shoot you if you don't tell them where the money is. And so Pepe said, oh, okay. And, and in Spanish, he said, well, if you go to the, the well in the center of town and the handle and count 17 stones down, and then you pull that stone out, that's where I've stashed all the loot. And, uh, and the, 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 the you know, Texas Rangers look at the bartender, what did he say? And the bartender said, well, Pip is a brave man. He says, you're a bunch of stinking pigs and he doesn't <laughs> care to die because <laughs> he was gonna go get the money himself. Anyway, that's a <laughs> proper interpretation is really important. And sadly, there's people that are not interpreting scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ. And so they can come off in different ways. They can either come off really loosey-goosey and open to just sinning 
or they can come off extremely legalistic and brutal, never really bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have to see everything through the lens of Jesus Christ, all things concerning himself. John the Baptist, even though he spoke fiery sermons, he got it. Remember when Jay the B in John 3.30, he said, he, that is Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Um, and this is, this is really so important. Um, what, do you, what do you do if you want people to repent of their sins? Brett, you need to teach more about repentance. Oh, I talk about repentance all the time. No, you gotta preach more on repentance. And you gotta give it to them, man, let them have it. Um, well, here's what I've discovered. The Bible is true. And one of the things the Bible says about repentance, what leads men to repentance? I already told you today. It's Romans 2, 4. He says, do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, his patience, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Don't you understand? If you're reading the NIV or the ESV, it's, it's don't you understand the kindness of God is what leads people to repentance? John the Baptist, his message was prickly and powerful and fire and brimstone, but it ultimately even came down to, but you gotta look at Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the whole world. Um, it's, it just makes the whole Bible make perfect sense if you look at everything through the lens of Jesus Christ. If you wanna rightly divide the word, it's gotta be Jesus. Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. The scarlet thread of Jesus is found from cover to cover. If you miss that, you might be misinterpreting scripture. By the way, if you're still in your sins and you've never repented of your sins, the goodness of God, the fact that God loved you so much that he sent his son to die in your place. You don't even have to undo your own sinfulness. You have to repent of it and say, I'm changing my mind about my sinfulness. And when you repent and change your mind and acknowledge your sin before God, then Jesus says, I will take away the sins that you've committed. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it, but it's a free gift from God. Don't miss that. Let's pray together. And Lord, I do ask that you would uh, sharpen us as we interpret scripture. May we constantly be seeing and looking for your son, Jesus. How to interpret scripture. Um, Lord, the Old Testament law makes no sense at all except for the fact that your son came and didn't do away with the law, but perfectly fulfilled the law. And the law, that schoolmaster that drives us to the work of the cross through Jesus. It all starts to make sense in light of your son. So give us understanding, sharpen us as a church and help us not to get off on tangents and, and forget to bring Jesus into every discussion and every, every scripture, Lord. And for those who yet to know your love and your forgiveness, may you cause them to get to a place um, to know you're kind and you're loving, even as you were with the woman caught up in adultery, that you will do that with all of us and forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So cause those that have yet to be saved and forgiven to repent of their sins and, and accept the work of the cross, that they might too have new life in Christ. Thank you for this word. Help us to, to um, internalize it and own it. Lord, today we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.